<laughs> Hello and welcome to season two of Rethinking Work. Season? Season or series. Yeah, I like it. American series. Se- season, it's good, season. international. So this season we have a load of interesting guests coming up, but we thought we'd look further afield. Our previous season was all about rethinking work, but we thought we'd go further and think about cities. So we have guests from Montreal, from Toronto, from Auckland, from London, Paris, Paris and Paris. Yeah. Everywhere. So this week we have Tamara Brisk, who is the founder of an amazing company called Moki. Bill, why don't you give a bit of a description? Uh, Moki, it's a circular economy play. And the idea is this is an amenity that goes in buildings to help uh, people recycle and reuse the things they no longer need in their life. And sometimes you get money in return. And uh, tomorrow we'll go into a bit more of it. But it's pretty, it's a pretty amazing uh, operations business that's to do with reuse, recycling, rehousing, and re- redeploying. Um, and and she started it in in France and is now coming to London. And we're really we're really excited to hear about it. Actually. And if you're if you're new to this podcast, we should say we're Bill and Ben. We are the founders of Able Partners. And Bill, you're going to introduce us. We well, we're an architecture firm. Um, we do offices and hotels, and and uh, we're trying to make cities fantastic. So if you enjoy the podcast, click subscribe, head on over to ablepartners.co.uk for our website or find us on able underscore partners at Twitter and Instagram. Enjoy the episode. This is Tamara, the CEO and founder of Moki. It is fantastic. It's amazing. Sorry, say that again. I only just clicked record. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so well, let's start again. <laughs> Let's start again. I did all the cameras. I got all the clean. Classic. Just take off the top. So I wanted to kick off. We have an amazing guest called Tamara, who who has got all sorts of brilliant, brilliant commercial ideas and realities. But we were talking just before we went on air about France, which is where where you're based. And it's the beginning of September, so you've just had August, and that is quiet, right, in in Paris. It is extremely quiet in Paris. So for most of August, the Parisians leave Paris. Uh, Paris is the center of France, and if you actually ask most Parisians, it is France. Sure. Right? Londoners are a bit like that. <laughs> yeah. And um, most of the restaurants are closed. I was in Paris for a week in the middle of August, and I walked up and down my street, and I took signs of every business that was closed that had a sign in the window that said, we're closed for three weeks, we're closed for four weeks, we're closed for five weeks. Um, and there were two shops open on one city block, a commercial city block, and all of the rest of them were closed for minimum three and up to five weeks. Are we saying this is good, right? This is a well, good thing. Is, is it? I think it's fantastic. I mean, we've, we've introduced, um, uh, we've interviewed someone who is very keen on the four-day work week and has written this amazing book about it in this podcast series. And Andrew Barnes. Andrew Barnes. Coming yeah, up. I was about to say Andrew Scott, but I realised he's an amazing actor, so not, not him. Andrew Barnes. Um, but actually, is it is it just an extension of that? You know, instead of having your two week vacation annually, as I think they do in North America, you have this in full time. I've just taken most of August off, and I feel I feel great for it. <laughs> I, I don't know. Where do, what do you think tomorrow? Yeah, so I think it, it cuts both ways. On one hand. Um, the French are actually, there's tons of studies that bear this out. They're like more productive per hour um, than a lot of the Anglo-Saxons that sort of mock them, right? Um, so when they work, they really work. And then they go and really enjoy their playtime. So I think that that makes a lot of sense. Um, on the other hand, I think we've learned recently in the pandemic, coming out of the pandemic with hybrid working, that it was kind of nuts for us to all 
get on the subway in the morning at 8 a.m. and pack in at the same time, right? And then be forced to do it again at 6, 7 p.m., right? And when the French go on vacation, I mean, I have to reserve my train tickets if I want to go to the south of France exactly four months before the day of vacation if I want to go on vacation, vacation time, because in 36 hours, they're all sold out, right? Because we're like lemmings. We're all going at the same time. Wow. That actually sounds amazing. I mean, annoying if you're actually in France, but to have proper time off with your family, I think is really good. And also it takes away that sort of presenteeism thing you see in North America where you don't want to be seen to be taking holiday because you, you're not competitive or you're not ambitious enough within the firm. It's sort of enforced. You were saying something else about the government, the French government inf- having a, civil, a department of the civil service to enforce this uh, reality. So, so what it is, is um, it, it seems to be really a fundamental right in France to take vacation. Um, and so there is a part of the government that is financed and finances vacation for kids who come from poorer families and whose families would not be able to pay for them to go on vacation. So, you know, this for French people is like akin to... Uh, Healthcare, right? Uh, social security, right? Like this is a this is a fundamental right. Uh, I, I don't want to overstate it and say that you know if you move to France, right, everybody will pay for your vacation. That's not exactly how it works, um, but but it does demonstrate that that we have this notion that you don't go on vacation if you're rich or if you're lucky, right? You go on vacation because you're human and you work. Uh, that well, that's I mean, it sounds great, and it's many ways the French have always led on some of those what 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 attitudes to work that we're all catching up on so what is the best place to start this story tamara um we met through a mutual friend uh called natasha who works for reach uk uh and is backed by second century capital who was on series one who was on series one and you have founded and run a, a company which they partly back and we started talking about France because you are you have launched and based this in Paris. Is that right? I have. Yes, I I started a startup in France as a North American. Wow. I wanted to ask because you you're, <laughs> you said you're Canadian, but you've gone. To, why Paris? Like, what was the uh, logic? So many years ago, I had a boyfriend in university. I was in university in the U.S. actually, um, and he moved to Paris, and I very dramatically could not live without him. And so That's I, so French. You, yeah. you need... <laughs> <laughs> and so I dropped out of university and followed my boyfriend to Paris and lived in uh, nine square meters with him, which is, I think, about 90 square feet. Um, wow. And if he sort of held my ankles and I leaned out of the window at the right angle, I could see the Pantheon. Um, and so I thought I was winning at life. <laughs> you realize this is the we best. Were. <laughs> No, I, I, I really do think that I was. Uh, and so I worked in the Canadian bar as a barmaid for a couple of years. That's how I learned to speak French. Um, and then I eventually went back to school, kind of laundered my bohemian past. Um, <laughs> I, I tried to go back to North America. I worked in Silicon Valley for a bit. I did an MBA in Chicago. And, but Paris kept, Paris kept pulling me back. Um, and so for, for a long time, I used to say that living in Paris was a lifestyle choice, that I had chosen my lifestyle over my career um, and that, you know, I could have a decent career in Paris, but nothing amazing. Uh, I do think that Paris has become a much better place to be an entrepreneur and to do business. Uh, I think it legitimately is much more of a European business capital these days. 
So that's that's interesting, like, because we we're expanding our, our view a little bit in this series to to talking about what's going on in other cities. Paris, the perception in the UK at the moment is that it has used the COVID period to transform from a, a kind of perhaps more car centric uh, than it should be to people really enjoy embracing bicycles and walking on foot, and so visually it looks very different. Is that is that how you characterise it? I think that Paris uh, has, has definitely become more uh, pedestrian friendly and uh, and they're certainly working very hard on this vision of the 15 minute city, they call it. Right. So you should be able to get everywhere and do everything in inside of 15 minutes. I mean, they had a considerable advantage to begin with. Right. Paris is one of the densest cities in the world. It's flat. It's small. Uh, so even before they embarked on this, it was pretty uh, it was pretty manageable in terms of getting around. Uh, what you have in Paris right now, which is pretty interesting, is a mayor who is uh, hugely divisive. So uh, there's a very small amount of Parisians that live inside of Paris that love her very much um, and uh, vote for her and support her. Uh, and then you have uh, everyone who lives uh, in the suburbs surrounding Paris uh, that, that hates her with a deep and burning passion. Uh, I encourage you, if you get in a taxi or an Uber in Paris, just say the name Anne Hidalgo and see what happens. I mean, I'm kind of, uh, I'm kind of comforted that the world is, is is divided as the UK is, and we don't have a kind of monopoly on a completely partisan life. But but that that is a the theme then of of like certainly some of our uh, our other guests about division, uh, uh, and so she has a majority, um, but but slim uh, with very divisive politics. You you mentioned that it was becoming a better entrepreneurial. Uh, environment. What, what, what's, what's led or created that? Is that just a, um, there are more startups, there is more money, or is that a regulatory thing? Um, I think there's a couple of things. So uh, I, I happen to be one of the few that actually still likes Macron. Um, and one of the things that Macron did uh, quite early on was to um, make it more transparent to, uh, to, to fire people. Right. Uh, so let's call a spade a spade. Right. Uh, so formerly, uh, if you were a boss in France and you wanted to get rid of an employee, you would sort of like uh, roll the dice and maybe your employee wanted to leave and you pay them decent severance and they'd leave. Um, or maybe they would sue you for years and years of salary. Um, and then that process would take three years to go through the courts. And in those three years that it goes through the courts, um, the company actually has to put that money in an escrow account and wait to see what happens. So for small businesses, that is incredibly difficult to weather, isn't it? Yeah. For small businesses, it's incredibly difficult to weather. Um, and it, in the end, it creates um, a labor market that's not as fluid as it should be. Right? Um, and look, you know, in the past few years, we've actually had quite a good labor market. Right? And so this was a great time to do this reform because actually people want to move, they can move, um, but there was this kind of like structural immobility in the market that was partially related to this. Um, and I, I used to, so before Moki, I used to run the French subsidiary of an American prop tech. Um, and I used to joke, I used to call it like my hour of comedy where I would have to explain to the American CEO French labor law, right? And so I- I, oh, I can imagine that being an absolute field day for him. He's like, what? What? <laughs> well, is it? They're, they're famously the two extremes, aren't they? Kind of American culture of hire and fire. And even, you know, even 
democratic or dare I say liberal voices in the US are very comfortable with that as a sort of commercial approach. And then the French, we, we sort of herald it, but it's, you know, it's, it's a figure of, oh, it's a sort of object of fun in the UK, the French labor laws, but actually, you know, we're probably closer to them than, than anyone. Um, what was the prop tech you were running? Uh, Wired score. Oh, wow. Oh, right. yeah. Okay. Uh, and how long did you run that then? A uh... couple of years. So I launched uh, the French business, which was the first continental business and, and built that business on the continent. So that is the perfect introduction to Moki. And for those that don't know, would you, would you very quickly frame it and, and what, what, it's, what it does? Sure. So our slogan is, uh, empty your closets, we'll take care of the rest. And so that is the value proposition to our end users. So end users are people who occupy buildings, people who use buildings. So those can be employees in office buildings. They can be shoppers in retail sites. They can be residents in mixed use buildings. Uh, anybody who uses a building uh, is who we are trying to, who we're trying to speak to, right? So that's just about everyone. Um, and concretely, we set up uh, little stations, and the stations can be packaged in different ways, and we can talk about that. Um, but the idea is that you, as a user of a building, can come with a bag of your old stuff, so mainly old clothing, uh, also uh, electronics, so cell phone, computers, tablets, uh, books, and toys. Those are the categories we're treating these days, uh, processing. And you drop it off, and we will then channel it to donation, recycling, and resale. Uh, we have about 400 partners behind us, so everything you drop off goes to one of 400 destinations. Uh, we trace everything, and we tell you what the destiny of your object is. And so, you know, the, the cocktail dress that I wore 15 years ago, uh, when I drop it off, right, I know if it has been sold to somebody, if it's been given, right, and I can actually imagine the future, uh, well, the, the ongoing life, right, of this dress. Oh, that's really interesting, like a like a, a clothing passport. <laughs> you can find out where it's but gone. But is, is there, yeah, I mean, that's, is, do you think that's a value to, well, clearly you think it's a value to people, but I'm thinking, does it matter to me whether that's resold or shredded and used in a rug? I don't know. Is that, do you think that the, because I know people care about the provenance of their items. It's interesting that that sort of circular element has now got that same value to them. So I think it really matters to you that your item will have a useful end. Sure. Right? Um, and what, what Moki is doing is inversing right, the, uh, the, the percentage, the ratio of what happens these days. So these days, without Moki, about 80% of your stuff, maybe not your stuff personally, but 80% of city dwellers' stuff, will end up in a bin, right, in a landfill, or will be incinerated. Right? There's only 20% of it that actually finds its way into the circular economy, into having a second life in some way, shape, or form. Uh, and so there's historically been a lot of problems with transparency with this, um, but also, you know, look, I'm, I am a former management consultant, for better or for worse, uh, and a few years ago, I was trying to make space in my apartment, and so I did uh, what, you know, I'd been telling myself I had to do for about 15 years, and I finally emptied out my closets and started trying to give stuff away, recycle it, sell it, et cetera, et cetera. And, and because, 
because of my training, I sat down and I made a spreadsheet. <laughs> and by the end of the second weekend, I had 40 different lines on my spreadsheet of 40 different like places that I was going to have to drop off my stuff or send my stuff uh, for all the different things. And I looked at it and I was like, you got to be kidding. This is a full time job, right? Uh, like no, no reasonable active person oh, can do also, this. But you've, you've, you've hit on the emotional point, which is the guilt and the shame. I mean, when I, you know, the fast, the fast, I've got small children. And so I buy quite cheap clothes because everything gets covered in like food and, and, and bodily fluids. And, and so I, it's fast fashion. And there is a guilt when I look at the tons of Uniqlo clothes there. And I think that that's the big problem that you're solving, not just the oh my God, I'm going to have to take these to all these different destinations. It's that, it's that sort of shit, sort of get guilt about over, overuse and actually helping to resolve that. Yeah, I think, you know, look, we, we know we're producing too much, right? Like it is, and, and it's quite frankly nuts, right? That we're producing things when there's so much usable stuff in, uh, in the universe, in the economy. There's just a transaction cost fluidity problem. Uh, and there are all of these platforms. I mean, one of the things that I find most amazing is these amazing platforms, Depop, Vinted, right, Vestio Collectif, they're so huge. They've done so well. It is a tidal wave, but it is work to use them, right? Like the difference between my buying something on Vestio Collectif, which I do all the time, right? Uh, well, all the time. Not <laughs> Try not to buy too much, but still. Uh, well, buying on Vestio Collectif and buying on Amazon, right? Like I have to do real work. Uh, to to be a customer of Vestiaire Collective, to sell through Vestiaire Collective, right? You don't have to do any work to buy on Amazon. And if you're concentrating on clothes then, as an example, so you get hundreds and hundreds of items of clothing and then what happens to it? You, you work with loads of different partners, so there's a supply chain behind you and... Yeah, is so it charities? Is it shops? Is it? We're a really operationally intensive business. So you drop off your stuff in the Moki space. Uh, it gets moved to our warehouse facility, uh, where people actually go through and sort it. Uh, we have software that we've developed where the sorters input um, certain things about the items. So. Uh, the condition that it's in, uh, what brand it is, if it's women's, men's, things like that. And then the software says, okay, send it to partner A. Um, and so behind us, we have uh, charities, we have recycling. So if you give us your socks with holes in them, we are delighted. Those recycle really well. We have a partner that will take them, use those fibers, make them into panels of insulation, uh, building materials a lot of, a lot of the time. Right. Um, but if you give us a courage coat, right, that's going to go to a high-end luxury resale shop, um, and then you will get the money for it when it's sold. Oh, so you do get the money for a yes. profit. Oh, wow, that's interesting. That, there you go. There you go. There we Bill's go. Eyes okay. Lift, the back the in, business school back thing. In, no, like, oh, there's money Because I thought this was all a sort of B Corp, <laughs> snuggly, lovely thing. No, no. Now I'm, now I'm interested. Not, not well, now you're Uniqlo. Close, how valuable? <laughs> no, it's, it's not. It's not that. It's. I was interested though about whether the idea was that you get, just give it, um, uh, and and then you were that that paid for a cost of what, what, like, like your operationally intensive business. What's interesting about that is it's almost like everyone is tracking to prop tech or certainly tech businesses that are just intermediaries you're 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 introducing different groups to people so actually to go deep into transport store storage sorting you know capital intensive business it's uh it's 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 fantastic actually and and it and it seems to be doing 
very well, but that's uh, that's that's sort of against the, the the trends you must have been seeing. Yeah, so VCs don't love it, right? Um, you know, every VC wants to see a SaaS subscription model uh, with no operational complexity, right? We are a we are a very op operationally complex business, um, but we we've made a bet, right? And um, and we've made a bet based on a few things and a few sort of mega trends, I think. Um, so, so the payer for Moki, right? Like somebody does have to pay us for what we do, not just not just our investors helping us lose money as quickly as possible. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm out. <laughs> uh, so our investors are major uh, institutional landlords and real estate investors, um, and they pay us for a couple of reasons. So they pay you to have a Moki station in their lobby, for example. That's correct. Yes. And that is a symbol of being part of a bigger recyclable and upcycling up, up system. So it is, yes, it is part of, uh, it is part of the overall sustainability and impact efforts, right, uh, of these, uh, of these organizations. But uh, I think that Moki is quite special uh, in one way, which is that the hard metrics that matter to landlords are metrics that Moki drives, and the more Moki drives them, the more impact there is, and also the more hard metrics there are. So I'm going to explain. I'm going to explain that. Right. So uh, if you are any kind of landlord, right, like the name of your game is occupancy. Right? So you've got to have people in your buildings. You have to have them full, and more and more, uh, you actually want people using them so not just like okay i rented a bunch of floors but now we're post-covid and so all the floors are empty and you know in three years they're going to ditch their lease uh you actually want these people like coming into your buildings and sitting in them so if you're an office landlord it's it's even clearer if you're a retail landlord right like the only way you make money is through footfall right um and so the way that moki drives impact right is we collect a whole lot of stuff and we recycle a whole lot of stuff. Well, the more people we have coming in, right, the better off the landlord is because people are coming into the office, they're happy to be in the office, they sit in the office because there are very interesting services like Moki there. And the more they do that, the more they drop off their articles, the more goes into the circular economy and the more impact we're creating. I hadn't made that link that having a Moki was like having an amenity like a gym or a cinema or a, or a great cafe. It's like, oh, it's got a Moki. It means that I can make revenue off my discarded items and that that makes this apartment block or this this office preferable to the one next door yeah and one one of the things you know people have sort of said to me this is like a weird idea right like you're like a, a clothing resale company what does that have to do with real estate etc cetera, etc cetera. but if you look at the trends pre-covid in real estate and that have accelerated right like more and more we're trying to figure out how to make a building into a consumer good right and i think that the answer to how you make a building into a consumer good is what is it that people want to consume right like uh i feel like they're we're part of a generation and the generation a bit younger than me right or a generation of like uh I, I buy, therefore I am, right? I sell, therefore I am, right? This is really part of their identity. And so if I look at the big mega trends of millennials and Gen Zs, right? What I'm seeing is the circular economy, right? Like that's what they want to do. I haven't yet figured out how you put Tinder in an office building. If I could, I would do that too, right? Uh, but like, you know, look at the behavior of the people you want in the buildings, right? And then serve it to them in the building in a way that forces them to come into the building. Yeah. 
Yeah, I was still thinking about Tinder being, being but yeah, that's yeah, basically like, being a tra- I, you're like, I don't have a Tinder in an office. That's a really interesting idea, actually. Well, that's all I, I mean, that's all I think an office is, really. And, you know, one in five marriages is spawned at work. But that's interesting. It's like, how, I, I like that idea of turning a building into a consumer good. How are their behaviours going to be best served? Um, so that is cross-sector. That is a... Maybe not a hotel, but, but, uh, but certainly residential and, and office buildings or mixed use or shopping center or actually anything, you know, anything that you have a moki in your neighborhood, you know, so it could be, I don't know, I'm thinking of, of our friends at Souk or temporary kind of pop up locations as well. And it felt like it started in Paris due to like personal reasons rather than uh, a particular commercial opportunity. Yeah, well, I was already living in Paris, and through Wired Score, I already had a network of um, asset managers who uh, I knew were trying to find ways to make their buildings sexier and more interesting. Right, and so you know, I, I did what a commercially minded entrepreneur does, and I sort of went, okay, I have this wacky idea. Let me go see if I can sell it. Right, um, and I and I sold it to a couple of people, and then and then we built it. Right, and then we built it and we delivered it. Um, and and that's how we've been. That's how we've been going. You uh, say that very flippantly. Sort of, uh, <laughs> I had this great idea. I saw it. I did it. And I was like, oh, I, hang on a sec. There were like you. You're clearly like very experienced and very well educated and lots of experience at this kind of uh, commercial side of it. Build building something like that. Is it a as simple as persuading somebody to let you try it and then putting some bins out? seeing what the the items that actually come are then working out which of these are going to be have uh, have use and which which are not is that is that how you approached it yeah is there a story where you just it was you washing them you organizing them you cleaning them and then taking them to a shop and seeing if it worked like that (laughs) oh yeah i mean i are the startup version of this (laughs) because it's kind of what i do with lucy's uh secondhand (laughs) stuff and i feel like haven't yet turned it into a multi-million pound business So, uh, you know, I I started this three years ago, two weeks ago, our sorting facility overflowed, which is a nice problem to have. Um, And myself and my team were sorting in my living room. Um, I live in a two bedroom flat. At the time, I had uh, one of my childhood friends staying with me from Singapore and then another friend who apparently had told me she was coming, but I'd forgotten. She rocked up with her husband and her three year old. Right. So I had three adults, four, four adults, a three-year-old, and eight people all in my living room with a few hundred kilos of clothing uh, sorting. Like, that, this is, uh, we, we're still very much in scrappy startup. Uh, one day a week, my workout is like carrying bags of clothes. So you're all horse trading. I've got a skiing jacket. Anyone else got, I've got two skiing jackets. Anyone else got <laughs> so tomorrow, you, are you... Are you the were you the sole founder? Yes, I I am still the sole founder. Uh, you're the sole founder, and then w- did you then sort of feel like you had tr- the famous traction word or proof of concept, or and and then you thought I'm going to need VC, I'm going to need external capital and some expertise, or did you want to do that because you had contacts there and you thought that'd be kind of a fun fun approach to it? What, what was your thinking? Okay, so this is this is like the really hard stuff, right? Uh, so I started Moki. So I had this idea in let's call it like February, March ish of 2019. I started trying to sell it end of April 2019. 
Um, and, and pretty early I had some like good, good, solid, good, solid interest, uh, takes a while to chase people down. You hit the French summer, you've got to do the legals, et cetera, et cetera, but got the thing signed and into a building. She's definitely let it go. The August French thing. Definitely. (laughs) Definitely cool with that. Uh, yeah, got the whole thing signed and in, uh, mid November, uh, mid November of 20, of 2019. Um, so mid-November 2019, between that and the beginning of March, I uh, like I had like this giant pipeline, right? Like we we made like a big splash with the launch in Paris. All of these former clients of mine from Wired Score were excited about it, um, and so I had I don't know like easily 10 contracts like in red lines, right? Uh, by March uh, by March 2021, and I've worked for venture-funded businesses before. Um, I've made some money with venture fund businesses before. I've been like completely screwed over by VCs before, like anybody who's ever worked with a VC. Uh, I say. So uh, the full spectrum. Do you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I, I came into this thing with an incredible amount of arrogance, right? Being like, I have got a giant fucking pipeline, right? Like my unit economics are strong. I am going to be at a million euros in revenue before I even look at a VC, right? And then, so then I hired six people. And then COVID happened. Uh, and so from... Wait, what's the one thing we can't share with each other? It, Anything you've touched? It's kind of like that episode in Silicon Valley where he yeah. goes around and apologizes to all the VCs. He's turned <laughs> no, but hang on, let's... Because let's, that's, that's, that's a real thing there. You, that's quite exciting that you, you've, got, you've got the contracts. You can hire people on the back of it. You're thinking, I've, I've kind of bootstrapped this. That means I not only retain retain ownership, but also control, and I can grow it at my pace. And there are lots of freedoms that not having that that happens. And then all of those those contracts were de- evaporated because suddenly the the tenants were not, either not there or not secure. Yeah, I mean, we you know we quite literally were locked in our homes in Paris for months and months and months, and with no visibility either. Right, so it was sort of like okay. Lockdown for three months, lockdown for another month. Well, the, ir- the irony being, that was exactly when we wanted to get rid of a lot of stuff because we were, we were then trapped at home with all these years' worth of Uniglow items backing up behind the door. But Either piling on weight or losing weight by <laughs> exercising. It's one of the two extremes. So COVID happened, I mean, I'm not sure if we would call it pivoting. I think we call it full-time side hustling, right? And so, you know, for a few months, I... Like I, I had, I had a bit of cash. I thought we were going to be okay, and so a few months I was sort of keeping people on in case we could go back to work, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and then a few months in, I was kind of like, oh shit, I'm, I'm out of cash, and my business is going to fail, right? Um, oh, and by the way, I've just, you know, spent all of my savings paying myself to build this, to build this business, and uh, and now I only have a few months, right? Like, uh, what are we going to do? And so. You know, for better or worse, thank God for Bain Consulting, um, because I was able to do freelance consulting uh, from my living room all through the pandemic. So uh, I was the general manager of a division of a New York-based full- fintech full-time uh, for like a good nine months during the pandemic. I worked for... Um, a company that does like ESG, uh, ESG scoring and grading and certifications for a few months. Uh, like I, I, I side hustled, right? Uh, I, I mean, I very full time side hustled, but uh, but that's how we made it through the pandemic. And uh, uh, you know, there were a lot of times where I was kind of like, oh, well, maybe I should just you know 
toss this in. Uh, yeah, like suddenly the side hustle's earning more money than, uh, yeah. I mean, much more, right? Because, you know, yeah. <laughs> Moki still loses money, right? Uh, and, um, but but I'm I'm very stubborn, and I did still manage to sign a couple of these contracts that had been you know deep in red lines before COVID during COVID, and I was kind of like, well, you know, we're going to come out of this. I'm going to have my contracts, and and I'm going to do this. So uh, so came out of COVID with the signed contracts, um, and then went, oh, I guess I'm going to have to go and raise some money now. Uh, <laughs> Wow, what a roller coaster. Sorry, I didn't mean to stop there, but, but that is a roller coaster. And then, um, and you seem comfortable in that world, you know. I mean, we, you know, some people don't like ra raising money, and it sounds, feels like you were very comfortable talking to, you know, you knew who to go to, how to address them, what the metrics they would care about are. Uh, your CV is obviously very kind of strong in that area. Was that. Did that take long to get the money? It, it did. And I, I think in some ways I knew who to talk to and in some ways I did not, right? Because I formerly had either worked for like pure SaaS businesses in Silicon Valley, right? That's a very different kind of investor. Um, and sure, if I had to go raise money for a SaaS business in Silicon Valley, it would be a whole lot easier. Uh, and or, you know, I worked for Wired Score, which by the time I joined it was already uh, much further along. And so that's also much easier to do. Uh, and so, you know, Moki is a business that was not designed to raise VC money, right? Like Moki is a business that was designed for me to accomplish a vision and have a lot of and have a lot of freedom doing it, uh, which is not it's not the same thing. Right. So it, it was harder. Also, uh, foreign investors are still very scared of France um, and they, they shouldn't be in later rounds. They're much more comfortable. But in seed, uh, they're terrified of it. Right. And so one thing that I had. Because well, of the macro conditions you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Well, they still have this like really silly 1980s view of France, which is like, you know, you can never fire anybody. Nobody ever works, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Right? Like it's like uh, it, it, it's silly uh, and it's just not true. Uh, but but I, I understand that it's it's foreign. And so if you're a VC and you have a choice of investing in a company that's nearby where you understand the context. Right. Or this weird, wacky French exotic thing. Right. Like doesn't matter how interesting the weird, wacky French exotics thing sounds, you're probably going to invest closer to home. Yeah. I mean, it's just, so you got the money. Yeah. You've now got the money. <laughs> but I did get the money. Yeah. <laughs> but you had to take a, quite a, like a detour from your original vision. Is the vision changed now because you've got VC investment, there's burn rates and you have to show a sort of return? Is, is the, if you had to scale up and speed up your original plan? No, you know, I, I think that... Um, I, for them, you know, let's talk about it again in a few months, right? But like right now, I, I, I actually think that the that the VC money is helping me, right? And like the the demands of the VC money are helping me. Um, so I'll give you one example. Um, I, I felt very strongly from having worked in office buildings and been in the office environment uh, with Wired Score that this push to tech and only tech was like really silly, right? So I would see all of these institutional landlords try and deploy like pure tech solutions um, and then nobody would adopt them and nobody would use them, right? Um, but they'd all be like, oh, but we, we bought some prop tech. We put some tech in this building, right? Uh, so but true, it's so true, isn't it? It's like 
just tech for tech's sake. Yeah, yeah. tech for tech's sake. Um, and so I came into this being like, no, actually, like humans are really important, right? Um, and so originally, my 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 vision with Moki was like, we have to have beautifully built out spaces, and we have to have fantastic staff, and the staff need to be internal in Moki because they need to be mission driven, right? And they need to evangelize for Moki. Um, and, and that is great, and we actually do that in a couple of buildings, and we'll do it in a few more buildings, and we're calling those the flagships, right? Um, but it's hard to sell a flagship, right? Like, it's much more expensive. It requires all kinds of sign-off from architects and interior designers, right? Like, it's like you're adding, like, nine months to your sales cycle, uh, which for a VC is, like, impossible, right? Uh, so, so that's really problematic. Um, and so I was, you know, now I have uh, uh, this VC money and, and we want to accelerate and we do want to democratize the circular economy, right? Like I didn't start this business so I could recycle like some of my girlfriend's clothes, right? Like, uh, like I am actually trying to change the way people consume and interact with real estate. Um, and so to do that, you have to be everywhere. So one day I went to go visit one of our flagship locations um, and the receptionist um, who we knew was like a power user of Moki, um, was talking about Moki uh, to some of the tenants like at the reception desk, right? And I was listening to her and I was like, did we train her, right? Like I was like, I was like, she's amazing, right? And she was like evangelizing for us. Um, and so I started having coffee with her. Every time I would go in the building, I'd sort of say like, hey, can I take you for coffee? And you know, tell me about your, tell me about your user experience and tell me about this, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, wait a second. There are all of these people who are already sitting inside buildings, right? Who are very good Moki users. So largely they are pretty young, they're not super well paid, they're quite fashion conscious, right? And so they are making money with Moki, they are buying things, you know, uh, through the circular economy all the time. Um, and, and, and they're sitting there and they also are pretty bored, right? Because uh, people who sit at the reception, like their time really isn't full. And in addition, their jobs are not very interesting or motivating for, for the most part, right? Like, uh, and so I was kind of like, wait a second. we And could also they're sitting opposite the murky boxes. You know, that's, that's it. I remember my grandfather once told me a story about a tailor that looked out of his window and sat and realised that the parking metre opposite was making more per hour than him. And that must be, in a way, <laughs> how it feels to look at a moki box. You're, you realise what a brilliant, uh, well, a, br a brilliant idea is sat, sat in front of you. Um, so you get these evangelizers. Uh, so it's the users who evangelize on your behalf. Well, the users, but these are building employees, right? Because I would have conversations with landlords all the time where we'd be like, we love Moki, Moki's amazing, but it's a little expensive and we have to find you the space and et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, wait a second, why am I paying somebody, right, to evangelize for Moki when you guys are already paying somebody who's already evangelizing for Moki and who's literally sitting in your building? Right. Um, and at the same time, I was also banging my head against the wall, right? You know, working on building this tech team and building the software to trace everything that goes through Moki to calculate the impact. So that we haven't talked about, but it's a very important part of Moki, which is that we calculate the impact, whether it's an environmental impact or social impact of everything that comes through our services, right? And like, this is like pretty serious software and it's a pretty serious software build, right? So 
like killing myself, right, to to build software. Uh, I have these evangelizers, and I'm kind of like, wait a second, we could just plug these things together, right? Um, and so this is where I feel like the, the VC stuff is helpful, right? Because they were kind of like, okay, you know, stop being so attached to your beautiful spaces that you want to put in where you can only sell a few of them a year, right? Like, find a scalable model that you can plug into a building tomorrow, right? And it it allowed me to sort of marry this idea where I was like, I'm not gonna sell some software, some app that nobody's gonna use, right? Like that is not my, that it's not what I wanna do. Um, but if I have the human element already there and I can train them on the software, like that's perfect. So yeah, so the, I was I was still trying to work out the, so the logistics then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'm just uh. trying to, I'm trying to picture it. Um, but I just want to like, if, if you've got a building here, like you want to adopt Moki in London, that's like, I know that we've, we've talked yeah. about this other cities and stuff. So if you're, if you're a building user, like you can get one of these in the ground floor and then, and then it attracts. You want to know people. what it looks like. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, what yeah, is it yeah, like? yeah. Explain yeah. it. <laughs> okay. So th this is where we've become much more flexible. So it can look like a bunch of things. It can look like one of the classic Moki spaces where you know we have really cool branding and we have a bunch of storage and it looks kind of like a concept store for the circular economy and there's a Moki person who's there um, who will teach you about the circular economy and we do all kinds of events and we do fun things where you know it's like recycle your bra month uh, so it can look like that or it can look as light as uh, your receptionist who's already sitting there. We go and park a cute branded Moki cargo bike next to her. We train her on the software. You come and drop off your stuff. Uh, she says, thanks so much, Bill, uh, and scans the barcode on the bag, puts it in the cargo bike, and later on in the day, an ugly non-branded cargo bike uh, comes and picks up all of that stuff and brings it back to a sorting warehouse, and we sort it. Um, and then you receive all kinds of notifications uh, that say, hey, great news, uh, your torn socks have now become isolation panels. And then you got, it, you, got, you got it all on your phone and you can you can essentially you can see exactly what you recycled. Well, well could, uh, I mean, I, I think it's a brilliant idea. I know Natasha, every time we speak to her, is is, is very excited about it. And I can see why. And I, you've done. I mean, I'm so impressed. I think I think the sky is the is the limit. There might be people who, listening who want to get involved who are not landlords or perhaps want to just be users. Um, is there a way in London that they can in engage now or is that still in the planning stage? So that is still in the planning stage. Uh, we are talking to some institutional landlords with some spaces. And so Moki sometimes is in an office, but sometimes we're in mixed use spaces that are open to the public. So we opened the first one open to the public in Paris two months ago. Um, and that's going very well. The same landlord in London has some very interesting mixed use space here uh, that they are thinking of putting us in here. Um, and so I, I think that I think that I might slow down my negotiations if I tell all your podcast listeners to all email this guy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I just think I mean it's 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 amazing and it, and it, I mean it ticks so many boxes. I mean also that just the transparency of what happens to your things. I think that that alone would be very interesting. Let alone getting some money back for an old I, iPad. I think that that. We, we, will, we will evangelize to, to our real estate community because I think this has got loads of loads of legs. And thank you very, very much for coming to talk to us. Ben, I don't know if there's anything else you'd no, like to... No, we've come up for the 40-minute mark, so, we, so I'll wrap this up. I just, it's, Paris is your focal point. 
other other major cities in France, or are you, is it just you're kind of it's the capitals, the way you got the highest density of people that it, it's most successful, right? Yeah, that's it. We we want to be in the biggest, uh, most dense cities and ones where buildings concentrate uh, the most amount of people. So Paris, London. Uh, naturally, after London, I actually suspect we'd go to North America before we started doing smaller cities. Um, and also, you know, for people who work in institutional real estate, right, uh, the, the holy grail uh, for this kind of business is to land and expand with an investor that has 4,000 buildings in the world, right? And so, you know, the real answer is, right, like, so Nuveen is one of my clients, right? Like, if Nuveen decides that I'm going to Chicago tomorrow, I am going to Chicago tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. If, if they give me enough buildings, Nuveen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we work with Nuveen. <laughs> so if people want to find out more, what, where, where's the best space to find out as much information as they can? So mokispace.com. Mokispace.com. And then Instagram, is that you? Instagram, yeah. So we are now Hello Moki. Uh, we have just launched our Instagram a couple of weeks ago. So uh, can, be, can be some of our early followers. Um, and Moki is M-O-K-K-I. So M-O-K-K-I space.com or Hello Moki. Hello Moki at, at Hello Moki. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Cohen. It's been really, really interesting. Thank you. Amazing. Thank you.